Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we discuss sugar, insulin, and the cancer connection with Sam Apple. which usually isn't even very strong about, you know, some chemical in our environment being linked to cancer. Like we immediately ban that chemical or put up warnings, but the evidence for insulin is so much stronger as a carcinogen for, you know, for hyperinsulinemia, for elevated insulin, you know, insulin might be 50 times higher in somebody with hyperinsulinemia than a normal person. So if you start to think of that, you know, like literally flowing through our blood, promoting growth versus, you know, some chemical, which maybe will provide, you know, could cause a mutation. I mean, the insulin case is so much stronger. We have to think of that as a carcinogen, is a real threat. And once you think of it that way, the next logical step is, okay, so if hyperinsulinemia promotes the growth of cancers, and yeah, I think it's almost indisputable that it does, what diet can you follow that will keep your, your insulin levels down? I mean, and that, and that leads you right to keto because, you know, that's what it's designed to do. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, thank you for pressing play today. I hope you are having an incredible day, whether you are on your way to work, on your way home from work, walking your dog, working out, washing dishes. Thank you. We're super grateful. And you're not going to regret it because we have an awesome episode today with Sam Apple, who is the author of a book called Ravenous, Otto Warburg, The Nazis, and the Search for the Cancer Diet Connection. You're going to hear his backstory and why he decided to write this book. He's been featured on Good Morning America. He's been on other incredible podcasts out there spreading the message. He was influenced by Gary Tobbs, who was on the Keto Camp podcast about a year ago. Uh, speaking about his book, The Case for Keto. And we get into some fascinating history of Nazi Germany, Dr. Otto Warburg, and some of the things that Otto Warburg did. He was so talented that his life was spared by Hitler. You're going to hear that story. You're going to hear about the history and how his arrogance was a gift and a curse and how he discovered back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, the cancer diet connection and why cancer is more of a metabolic disease versus a genetic disease. We get into the war against cancer that was declared and why that has been such a failure 50 years later. We're going on 50 years later and it has failed us. Look, cancer is that topic that nobody likes to talk about, nobody likes to think about. It's the C word, but it's very important because right now our numbers, which you're going to hear, are out of control. He gets into visceral fat versus adipose fat. 
the evidence of insulin causing cancer and how, hey, if you put cancer cells in a culture and add insulin, it grows. Huh, that's interesting. How cancer cells have more insulin receptors than other cells. We get into a really interesting molecule, enzyme called PI3K, and how it changes the lipid by attaching a phosphate. And we get a little sciencey, so put your science cap on, but it's super fascinating. We get into fasting, ketones, and cancer, and why Sam loves these tools as a preventative measure. So he loves keto. He does keto. We get into obesity and cancer. We get into diabetes and cancer. This is a very important topic. So if you know somebody who's dealing with cancer, please send this episode to them. After you listen to it, you want to sit back, take notes, and absorb the brilliance that is about to be shared by Sam Apple. I want to get to the Apple podcast rating and review of the day from GG72878, titled, Keep the Information Coming. So thankful to find Ben and the Keto Camp podcast to help me through the journey of good health and wellness. I've been going through the episodes and it's always a learning experience and a great resource to get so many of my questions answered. Thank you for what you do, Ben. Gigi, thank you for listening and listening to previous episodes and also taking the time to leave that rating and review. I'm so glad your questions are being answered on the show. That's what it's about. We want to give you clarity and action steps that you can take so you can change your life and then share that with your community. Hey, if you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcast, please do so right now. And here is my ethical bribe to you. For those who are listening to this episode and leave the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and a review, all you need to do is take a screenshot of that rating and review, email that to us at support at ketocamp.com, camp with a K. We will reply with our KetoFlex cookbook, which is 21 fat-burning keto recipes. We sell this for retail at $21. You'll get this for free just for leaving the show a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. So take a screenshot, send that screenshot to support at ketocamp.com. I always say structure trumps intention. You could have all the best intentions in the world, but if you don't have the structure in place, it's going to be very difficult to get the amazing keto and fasting results that you want. If you are on the go traveling and you don't want to think about what can you eat to help you feel satisfied and to help you continue getting results on your keto journey, for me, my structure when I'm on the go, when I'm traveling, and when I want to have something nearby that's a healthy snack, my go-to is Paleo Valley's Beef Sticks. Paleo Valley Beef Sticks are the perfect gut-friendly, clean protein snack for on the go. And if you have children, this is one of the best things to give your kids. These beef sticks are 100% grass-fed and finished by farmers right here in the United States. They contain naturally occurring probiotics, which helps increase the diversity in your gut. It contains organic spices. It has high concentrations of omega-3 fatty acids, elevated levels of conjugated linoleic acid, which we know is an antioxidant and also could enhance your body's ability to burn fat. It contains vitamins and minerals, elevated concentrations of glutathione, which is your body's master antioxidant, and it's good for the environment. They have flavors that range from original to garlic summer sausage, regular summer sausage, jalapeno, 
teriyaki and they also have turkey sticks available as well. They taste so good that I usually go through three or four and I think I might set the record for eating almost 10 Paleo Valley beef sticks. Maybe somebody out there has eaten more than me in one sitting. You know, me and my fiance, Natasia, we're always fighting over these beef sticks in our house. We go into the pantry and I hear her unwrapping it and I'm like, hey, are you eating one of my beef sticks? <laughs> they are delicious. And since you are a avid listener of the Keto Camp podcast, we worked out an exclusive deal for you to get 15% off your entire order of Paleo Valley products. All you need to do is head to paleovalley.com and use the coupon code KETOCAMP15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order. That is KETOCAMP15 at checkout. We'll also drop a link down below in the show notes. Okay, let's talk about sugar, cancer, and insulin with Sam Apple. Sam Apple is on the faculty of the MA in Science Writing and MA in Writing programs at John Hopkins. Prior to his arrival at John Hopkins, Apple taught creative writing and journalism at the University of Pennsylvania for 10 years. He holds a BA in English and Creative Writing from the University of Michigan and an MFA in Creative Nonfiction from Columbia University. Sam is the author of an awesome book titled Ravenous. He's also the author of American Parent and Schlepping Through the Alps. Here's Sam Apple. Sam Apple, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. Uh, I'm excited to chat with you on cancer and your new book, which is all about Otto Warburg, the Nazis, and the search for the cancer diet connection. Great title. And uh, the history of Warburg is just so fascinating. So my question to you is this. What made you want to research this topic and why did you decide to write this book? Sure. Uh, I was interested in, in metabolic disease and metabolic health more generally. I had uh, been influenced by Gary Taubes in particular, as I know a lot of people in the keto world have been. Yeah. And um, I was really surprised to learn that, that cancer was you know, associated with diabetes and, and insulin resistance and obesity and cardiovascular disease. Like All the other diseases somehow felt a little more intuitive to me, but I had thought that cancer was an entirely separate story. You know, you get an unlucky mutation or you get radiation somehow. And so the connection between cancer and metabolic disease really surprised me and piqued my curiosity. And um, I knew that I wanted to dig further, but, you know, I, I'm a writer by training, a, sort of a storyteller. I did a degree in creative nonfiction. So I always look for a character and a way to tell a story. And uh, when I learned about Warburg's you know, famous discovery, which we'll perhaps talk about more, I became intrigued by Warburg as not only a scientist, but as a character and learned about his story of survival in World War II. And then I wanted to see if I could put it all together, you know, write about a scientist's life and explain all this metabolic science in relation to cancer. So Warburg, let, let's talk about him because your, your book does give a really fascinating look at the history of Warburg. For some people who are listening, they probably don't even know who Otto Warburg is or the Warburg effect. So let's go back to what was 1930s, 1920s, 30s, 40s, when there was Nazi Germany and there was a lot of craziness in the world. And, and what happened, what transpired during those times? Yeah, so in, in, in 1923, Warburg makes this famous discovery uh, called the Warburg effect now, which shows that uh, you know cancer cells 
take up a lot more glucose than other cells and, and burn it without oxygen. They, they ferment it just like microorganisms do. And so it's a really important discovery. And Warburg also has made other discoveries about how cells breathe and use oxygen. So he's a very important scientist. And then the, uh, he wins the Nobel Prize in 1931. And then in the 1933, the, the Nazis come along. And because he has a Jewish father, he's in a lot of danger. He's also uh, more or less openly gay. He lives with another man. And uh, so he's in great danger. But the Nazis ultimately protected him because they were so interested in his cancer science. And, and Hitler, in particular, was really obsessed uh, with cancer and paranoid about cancer. So uh, he, you know, survives the war really because he's made this discovery about cancer and metabolism. That's really fascinating. That you know, his research was such such a breakthrough, and Hitler was concerned about cancer that he ended up sparing him. Uh, I remember you sharing about Germany going to all these clinics and you know having them shut down or having them do different things, but Warburg kind of uh, didn't follow suit. So, what were some of the things that Warburg did? that didn't go along with what Nazi Germany was, what was happening in Nazi Germany? Oh, yeah. So, you know, he was a part of, uh, you know, really incredible scientific establishment. He worked in the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, and there were a number of these institutes that were really leading the world in, in science. And, um, you know, German science was so dominant at the time that you really had to know German and be able to at least read German to, to participate in many scientific fields. And so in 1933, a lot of the other German scientists of Jewish heritage flee, you know, seeing what's coming with Hitler, but, but Warburg refused to budge. And, um, you know, the Nazis stormtroopers come to his institute and bang on the doors and try to harass him. And, and he literally, you know, chases them out and screams, you know, how dare you interfere with my research in it. It's really an incredible show of arrogance, given the fact that, you know, his life could have been in, in jeopardy. And, you know, that's one of the most fascinating things about Warburg for me is that, uh, you know, he, he was a brilliant man, but he was also, you know, one of the most arrogant human beings who's <laughs> ever lived. You know, the famous example of this is when he was told uh, that he won the Nobel Prize. His first response was, it's about time. And he actually did have a pretty good case because he, he had deserved it uh, a number of years earlier, uh, one scientist said on a scale of one to 10 of arrogance, Warburg was a 20. Uh, <laughs> he, he just couldn't accept that the Nazis, you know, were going to tell him what to do. And he called them like low life thugs and he wouldn't give the Hitler salute and he wouldn't put up the Nazi flag. And at the beginning, he, he got away with it because he was a famous scientist and he had just made this hugely important discovery. But he did, you know, as the things got worse, he really did get into to trouble and it nearly cost him his life. It really all came to a head in, in 1941. They called him into a Nazi headquarters. And at that point, his international reputation didn't really matter anymore. Uh, there was no reason to protect him. And uh, the Nazis sort of did a review of all his work and um, eventually decided to spare him on the promise that he would only focus on, on cancer from that point forward. And, um, you know, it's amazing and crazy in a way that, that Warburg didn't leave Germany when he himself had the chance. But um, he, he thought for many years that the Nazis would fade away. A lot of people thought that. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, he was so arrogant. He said that, um, you know, another scientist can find a lab, but it's difficult for a king to find a new kingdom. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, well, that's interesting. I could think of another brilliant man who's very arrogant, who's actually just the president of the United States. <laughs> so speaking yeah, of which, yeah. so what happened though? Because then later on, you have this war against cancer that's taking place. And it completely, you know, it, it looks at cancer as a genetic disease where, you know, you're just unlucky, it mutates kind of like what you shared earlier. So what happened in Warburg's research to what transpired and what is still happening with research on cancer? Sure. So one of the strangest parts of Warburg's story, you know, he has this miraculous story of survival in Germany throughout the war. He's the only Jew, you know, scientist of Jewish heritage from the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes that survives from beginning to end in Berlin at his laboratory. And then after the war, his research really starts to disappear. And, um, you know, it happens. There are a number of different reasons that contribute to it. Part of it is that, you know, new science comes along, which challenged some of his findings. But, you know, the single biggest reason was, you know, starting in the 1950s, they, you know, famously discovered the structure of DNA. And um, that leads by the 1970s to a new sort of genetic understanding of cancer where they're identifying specific mutations, which seem to be, you know, the direct cause of a cancer. So the stuff that Warburg had studied, you know, how cells take up glucose or take up nutrients and shift their metabolism, that was considered irrelevant to the more sophisticated genetics, well, you know, what they call the new molecular biology. They literally referred to the stuff Warburg, the enzymes Warburg studied as housekeeping enzymes. So, you know, scientists understood that if a cell is going to grow, they need to take up nutrients to support that growth. But it was thought of as um, sort of a passive response to what was going on in, with the more sophisticated genetic stuff. And uh, Warburg just completely disappeared, you know, by the, um, you know, 1990s. There was, an, I found an article talking about, you know, students had never heard of them. And then uh, in 2000, a famous paper comes out called The Hallmarks of Cancer, which doesn't mention Warburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, his textbook comes out in 2006, doesn't mention him. Uh, the Emperor of All Malady is a great book, but doesn't mention Warburg. You know, it's just all the metabolism stuff is just gone. And, um, you know, it's amazing to me that that, that happened. But uh, in the late 1990s, researchers, uh, Chi Van Dang at Johns Hopkins was one of them, uh, Craig Thompson, uh, now at Memorial Sloan Kettering, they started to find that these oncogenes that they had been studying, you know, all this new molecular biology, the, the key oncogenes were actually controlling metabolism. They were controlling, you know, how much glucose the cell took up or how it turn that glucose to fermentation. So it was this synthesis of, you know, bringing all of Warburg's science into the modern era. But, you know, for me personally, like that, that's a really interesting story in itself, I think, but I was interested in a secondary question, which not all the cancer scientists are interested in, which is that, you know, if cancer is about these metabolic shifts inside of a cell, what is it about the way we eat that affects the way a cell eats. And that's why, you know, the last part of my book, I really focus on that, on that discussion. That is the exact question that we should be asking. So it sounds like the fact that Warburg's research has disappeared from these, these recent textbooks, it sounds like it was intentional. Do you think that it was intentional the way that it's been kind of mysteriously gone or just by chance, coincidence? Yeah, well, it's, it's really interesting. And in some ways, you know, there's another factor which I didn't mention, which is that, um, you know, some scientists were suspicious of Warburg because he survived the Nazis, you know, wondering, did he collaborate in some ways? And that also, you know, affected his reputation. And there actually is 
you know, one very prominent scientist, uh, Robert Weinberg, who made important discoveries of oncogenes, who, you know, was one of the seminal people in the field and, and, and still is. And, and he openly acknowledged that uh, his bias against Warburg was real. And he suspected Warburg of, you know, being a little too close with the Nazis or whatnot. So, you know, I think that did affect that, you know, Weinberg wrote this, or co-wrote this famous paper, The Hallmarks of Cancer, and wrote the textbook that I referred to. So I think that that did play a role. And, and beyond that, you know, I, I think the idea that, you know, if you follow Warburg's discovery to its logical conclusion, it takes you back to, to diet. And there is, you know, this huge bias against, you know, taking diet seriously in the context of, of many diseases and, and cancer. So in that sense, I think it was intentional as well. But, um, you know, I, I don't think there was a conspiracy or any means to, to keep this out. It's just, it seemed unimportant and unscientific to a lot of people. Yeah, makes sense. I want to take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers of taking fish oil. I know, shocking. I was somebody who took fish oil every single day for years. And then I came across a ton of research showing the dangers of consuming fish oil. I immediately found an amazing product called Pureform. Pureform is a plant-based omega. And the cool thing about Pureform is that it is uniquely processed with nitrogen to preserve it and make sure it does not oxidize. These essential fatty acids are cold pressed and you get the proper balance of omega-6 and omega-3 to feed your cells what it desires. We know that life begins and ends at the cell membrane. And when you have the proper fats, the building blocks for those cell membranes, all of a sudden your fat burning hormones can do its job. So you lose weight. All of a sudden your cells produce energy. So you feel good. So we know that cellular health is key for performance and longevity. So I've been taking Pureform every single day. My dog takes it every single day. So does my girlfriend and my mom. This is how much I love the product. If you want to get your bottle delivered to your door, head over to purelifescience.com. Check them out. Order a bottle or two, and you'll be amazed by how you feel after taking this just after a few days. That is purelifescience.com. Use the coupon code BEN4 to apply a $4 off coupon. That is BEN, B-E-N, and the number four. International shipping is available. Okay, let's go back into this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. So we know that the current stats in America are one out of three women are, are diagnosed with cancer within their lifetime. And for men, it's about one in two. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that the question that you asked is if we could change kind of these metabolic pathways and how the body responds and turns, uh, dims genes and d- dims genes down or dims, dims the light switch on, if you will, by what we eat, then let's talk about what we eat. I mean, the standard American diet is 300 to 400 grams of carbs per day, typically processed foods, industrial seed oils. So let's speak about what sugar does to promote cancer growth, cancer proliferation in the body. Sure. So the the way I like to kind of focus the story is, you know, by pointing out something really interesting that happened, which is that the the first sort of rediscovery of, of Warburg's science took place in the late 1990s and almost at the exact same time, uh, a different group of scientists, epidemiologists, you know, scientists that are just looking at cancer trends and populations, 
started to find like really concrete evidence that cancer was closely linked to obesity. You know, the numbers are, are pretty astonishing. Now there are 13, you know, 13 of the most deadly cancers have been solidly linked to obesity. And, and I think there's a number of others that will soon be added to that list. You know, that list didn't even in, include prostate cancer and it still accounted for over 600,000 cancer diagnoses a year. So we have these two things happening at the same time, obesity linked to cancer and a rediscovery of the cancer cell taking up glucose and fermenting it. And, you know, I became interested in particulars, you know, is it the obesity causing the cancer or is there something that's perhaps driving both of those things? And, you know, the, the most compelling evidence I think is that, um, you know, it's actually insulin elevated levels uh, of the hormone insulin that, that could be responsible both for the obesity and for, you know, giving, you know, microscopic cancers a chance to grow and thrive. And uh, so, so to me, as I learn more and more about the obesity cancer and the insulin cancer connection, then the next logical question is, okay, if it's about insulin and related hormone, insulin-like growth factor, which, you know, insulin can also increase insulin-like growth factor levels, then the question is, what is it about our diet that, that causes insulin to rise. And that took me back to sugar in particular. I mean, refined carbs in general, but but sugar, I think, first and foremost. And, you know, if you look back in the to the 19th century to today, the increase in sugar consumption, you know, maps pretty closely to the the rise of, you know, diabetes and heart disease, but also cancer, you know, begins in the late 19th century and then just goes up and up and up. And um, you know, I I think that um, it's really about, you know, sugar. When I say sugar, I mean, first and foremost, not just any kind of carbs, but specifically sucrose, the sweet white stuff, which is half glucose and half fructose, and seems to be better that, than almost any other food at, at driving insulin resistance and elevated insulin. And, uh, you know, I think that was, you know, it doesn't explain everything, but explains a large part of why cancer became so much more common in the modern world and, and continues to be common. And, um, you know, one of the most surprising parts of my research was, was looking at all these populations that didn't actually have cancer, you know, in the late 19th century and even in, into the early 20th century. Uh, in some cases, you know, almost unheard of. I mean, there's maybe a rare one here or there, but um, as soon as they start switching to the Western diet, then, you know, they start getting cancer and, and the other diseases just like everybody else. So I think it's pretty clear that it, it's something in the diet. And I think the, the strongest evidence certainly per, points to, to sugar by way of insulin. Yeah. And you, you're so right. We do have a problem with spiking insulin throughout the whole day. Uh, it's estimated that 88% of Americans are metabolically inflexible. And even when you're just eating so frequently, two to three meals a day, snacking meal, snacking meal, you're going to have this insulin response. And I know that they've put these cancer cells into a cell culture and they added insulin and it, and it grew and it grew, right? Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, for, for many types of cancer, it, it's literally like one of the ingredients. Like if you want to grow cells in a dish, the standard protocol is to add insulin. And if you wean them off the insulin, the cells die. So it's not every type of cancer, but a lot of cancer. So, you know, in a way it was staring us all in the face, you know, the whole time that this was part of the story. You know, and again, you know, speaking of staring in the face, even as Warburg's science about how cancer cells are taking up glucose had disappeared at the same time, this new test came on 
this new diagnostic test known as a PET scan, you know, came onto the scene. And it really just works by showing where in the body more glucose is being taken up. And that's how you diagnose the cancer. So it was very literally staring everybody in the face. But, um, you know, nevertheless, nobody was paying attention to the actual science that Warburg had uncovered. Out of the practitioners, doctors and scientists that are doing the work right now in oncology, would you say that maybe Dr. Thomas Seafried is kind of carrying Otto Warburg's work the most effective or is there anybody else? Like, what do you think of Dr. Thomas Seafried's work on this subject? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Seafried because he, you know, he saw something clearly that, that other people were missing about metabolism. And he's one of the people that put it back on the map. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that, um, you know, I, I don't even know if I would have, you know, come across this topic if he hadn't, you know, years before me started bringing Warburg back onto the scene. So I, I think he gets a lot of credit, but uh, I didn't end up, you know, he actually thinks Warburg was largely right about everything in terms of how cancer begins, where I ended up, and he may be right, but I ended up taking a somewhat different view. You know, this gets into the weeds a little bit, but uh, Seafried you know, points to all cancer sort of beginning in, in the mitochondria with problems with how a cell uses oxygen. And that's very much in keeping with Warburg's uh, hypothesis. I think that that's certainly true in some cancers, but uh, not necessarily true in all cancers. So I think he and I, and, and he's, a, you know, of course, a scientist and expert, I'm just a journalist. But, uh, you know, I think where the overlap is, is in the context of, you know, both of us seeing cancer as a, meta, you know, a metabolic disease or, you know, many types of cancer as a metabolic disease. Uh, though the precise mechanisms, I was more focused on how insulin acting like a growth factor is promoting growth. And he was more focused on the mechanism inside the mitochondria. But the reason I'm mostly focused on insulin is because, you know, I'm mostly interested in, in the connection between diet and cancer. And that to me seems to be the path. You know, what he's talking about is a little downstream from the dietary stuff I'm focused on. Yeah, got it. So when we talk about diet and cancer and insulin in this conversation, and you mentioned Gary Tobbs, who has been on the podcast before. We talked about his book, The Case for Keto. Uh, we love keto here, clean keto. It's a great way to lower those insulin levels. So I know that it's not necessarily a way to reverse cancer, but as a preventative approach, what do you think about the ketogenic diet? Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge uh, believer in and keto as a logical way to you know, try to prevent cancer. You know, there, there are no guarantees. Some cancers are just unlucky mutations and, you know, some are, are inherited, but uh, I think that, that most are not. And I think probably the single most important thing you can do to improve your odds for cancer prevention, to keep your insulin levels low. You know, I like to think of it as, or just to think about the fact that when there's, you know, evidence, which usually isn't even very strong about, you know, some chemical in our environment being linked to cancer, like we immediately ban that chemical or put up warnings. But the evidence for insulin is so much stronger as a carcinogen for, you know, for hyperinsulinemia, for elevated insulin, you know, insulin might be 50 times higher in somebody with hyperinsulinemia than a normal person. So if you start to think of that, you know, like literally flowing through our blood, promoting growth versus, you know, some chemical, which maybe will provide, you know, could cause a mutation. I mean, the insulin case is so much stronger. We have to think of that as a carcinogen, is a real threat. And once you think of it that way, the next logical step is, okay, so if hyperinsulinemia promotes the growth 
of cancers. And yeah, I think it's almost indisputable that it does. What diet can you follow that will keep your, your insulin levels down? I mean, and that, and that leads you right to keto because, you know, that's what it's designed to do. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying it's the only way to do it. And, you know, some people eat more carbs and fast and, and some people, you know, maybe don't, you know, just are lucky and are extremely insulin sensitive. But if you're not insulin sensitive, it just seems like such a, a natural step to follow is to, to follow something keto-like to keep those insulin levels down. And it typically takes 10, 15, 20 years before the average person goes to their doctor and they're diagnosed with prediabetes or diabetes, meaning your blood sugars might look okay for that time, 5, 10 years, but you could be having these elevated insulin responses. That's why I recommend everybody get a fasting insulin done. You want to see that in the single digits. That's an important marker to look at what's going on. If you see that over 10, you know that something's going on. There's too much glucose and insulin being produced and you have to make some changes. What about the role of fasting. Uh, I know fasting is another great way to drop your insulin levels. For example, Dr. Thomas Seafried, I know he's a big fan of autophagy and achieving what he calls max autophagy. To really, He's actually seen tumors shrink before his eyes. So what are your thoughts on fasting autophagy for cancer prevention? Yeah, I don't know as much about that as some of the other areas, but um, you know, I do, you know, from things that, that I've read, you know, I haven't done a lot of direct research on it, but it seems like, you know, intermittent fasting is one very successful strategy for keeping insulin down and, and seems to, you know, if you can do it consistently, it seems to work quite effectively. I mean, I've seen people who have uh, been relatively healthy on a low carb diet and even got healthier and lost additional weight by adding in intermittent fasting. So I, I'm a believer in it. And, you know, if it's leading to that additional weight loss, it's most likely because, you know, it's getting the insulin levels lower. So, you know, with fasting, of course, everyone has, has to be cautious and make sure they're, they're doing it in a responsible way, but I, I'm a believer in it. And, I'm, you know, I've been low carb for a while, but I'm trying to now add in a little bit of fasting as well. And, and just to add, you know, to the point that you made before about, you know, being unaware that you have insulin resistance for many years because your blood glucose is under control. Yeah, I think that's a, an important point. And, and also to point out that even if you're thin, you may have these problems or appear. I actually, in, in my, my late 20s and early 30s, was still relatively thin, but um, had elevated triglycerides. I didn't know what that meant at the time. Now I know that that's a clear sign of insulin resistance. And I had a pretty bad diet. And, um, you know, there's a lot of diabetes in my family, and we're all relatively thin. And it's surprising to me, but in some ways, it being naturally thin can actually be a disadvantage because you can't store subcutaneous fat is you sort of go like straight to the diabetes. So um, if you're built like I am, don't, don't assume you're okay. Yeah, no, it's a very important point. A lot of people are under the assumption that just because they're skinny, that they have a healthy metabolism and they don't have insulin resistance to diabetes. But if you're not checking your triglycerides, you want to see that below 100, even better below 70, where you're fasting insulin, you really have no idea. Some people just genetically pack on that fat around their adipose tissue, visceral fat, as opposed to subcutaneous fat. So that might be, that's what you are, exactly what your genetics do. I'm also like an ectomorph as well, which would happen with me. So I do my testing, I make sure my levels are optimal. I wanted to ask you if you've done any research on industrial seed oils or vegetable oils and that linked to inflammation and cancer. Have you looked at any of that? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I looked at that a little bit, and um, I think there's more to the story. And you know, certainly the inflammation is not a good thing in the context of cancer. But I decided partially, I think, through the influence of Taubes, to go with sort of the Occam's razor approach of looking at kind of like the most basic, simple explanation being the one you start with and focus on. So for that reason, I kept it more uh, focused on sugar. And, you know, partially also because, you know, as Talbot, I think, once put it, wherever you look, sugar is on the scene of the crime. You know, you go back to the 19th century and all these different populations. And it's a little less clear cut with, with some of the vegetable oil stuff, but but certainly, you know, the, the inflammation stuff looks real. And, you know, I in my own diet, I, I'm starting to try to avoid that a little more as well. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, a lot of these processed foods that are high in sugar usually come paired with vegetable oil. So if you're going to have vegetable oils, typically you have high sugar, high carbs with it. So yeah. Yeah, it's hard to separate the variables. Correct. Yeah. So what are some other maybe things that people are unaware of that might be contributing to cancer growth? Like what are some ways other ways we can optimize our insulin and glucose levels so we could be proactive instead of being reactive? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for some people, exercise is always a question. You know, I, I'm someone, you know, based on what I've seen and read, is not a big believer that you can, you know, fix your metabolism with exercise alone. You know, there's the expression that you can't outrun a bad diet, which, which I think is true. But I do think it can help create a virtuous cycle in terms of, you know, feeling a little bit better about yourself after your exercise and then being more inspired to follow a diet, you know, which is low carb or, or keto or following, you know, some sort of intermittent fasting program. I've actually seen that uh, with my, my teenage son who doesn't usually focus on a good diet, but after he started working out recently and after workout, he's actually inspired to eat in a different way because he wants to sort of keep the good feeling going. So I do think that can help. And, um, you know, beyond that, I think that, you know, just kind of rethinking our, our fundamental conception of what cancer is and thinking of it uh, as a metabolic disease that is, you know, related to our diets, I think is absolutely fundamental. I think, you know, a lot of people sort of get it, but but can't make that cognitive leap to, well, if all this is true, therefore, you know, insulin, hyperinsulinemia could be thought of as carcinogenic. And I think about a lot is, you know, in the context of smoking, like, you know, for years and years, people sort of knew that that smoking was related to cancer. And then the definitive proof, you know, started to appear in the 1950s. Yeah. It just took a really long time, even after the evidence was there, for it to sink in. And one of the people who discovered this, Richard Dahl, he's made the sort of key discoveries in, in cancer, lung cancer epidemiology, showing smoking was linked to cancer. Even he said like it was so hard for him to accept because it was such a normal part of our lives. And, and I think that's really where the roadblock is with sugar. It's just so hard to accept that this thing that we have all eaten our whole lives and is part of if at the end of every meal, if not in the meal itself, to think that that could be causing so much harm is just difficult for people to absorb. Um, you know, it took me a long time in five years of research and you know, it eventually sunk in. But I think we need, you know, to get people to understand that more. And it's related to a lot of disease, but I don't think any disease scares people more than cancer for good reason. So I think that linking sugar to cancer was, you know, first and foremost, a way 
to prevent cancer, but but also to help with all the other metabolic problems. Because if people could just absorb that, I think it'll you know really make a difference in how they think about sugar. Yeah, it's a great point about the cigarettes and cancer. It was so socially acceptable because you saw all these late night talk show hosts smoking with their guests on TV. They were smoking inside of restaurants and bars on airplanes and you know, doctors were promoting it, right? It was so socially acceptable. And then the research came out, but it took such a long time to change that paradigm. And then now with sugar, so it's so socially acceptable. It's almost like an insult if you go to somebody's house and you say no to their apple pie or no to their whatever sugar bomb it is. And there's essentially a sugar dealer at every corner you look at, the gas station, the Walgreens, the supermarket, it's so accessible and socially acceptable that even though the research is coming out there, your research is out there and many, many others, it's hard to make that paradigm shift. So the question is, how do we do it, uh, Sam? Like, I, I know we're doing it and we're educating it, but for like the normal person who's listening and they want to share this with their family, like, what are the steps to do so? Yeah, no, I mean, that's... Really, you know, I, I wish I had the answer. You know, I, I struggle even, even in my own family to convince my kids. And, you know, there are different people who have different ideas, you know, one being, you know, sugar taxes, another, you know, having campaigns analogous to the ones we've had in smoking, you know, warning labels on uh, products. You know, I, I would certainly be happy to see, you know, cancer warning on, on every food that, that has sugar. But I think uh, we're a long way from there. But I, I think it'll take, learning from what worked in, in smoking and trying to reproduce that. But before we can get to that level, we have to to get, you know, people to realize that this connection is real. So, you know, hopefully that that will be the next step. But, you know, as as this message gets out, people will see that we, we have to follow the smoking campaign, which has, I mean, people still smoke, but in the U.S. it actually has been a success, you know, lung cancer is one of the few success stories in the war on cancer and entirely through prevention. And, and speaking of which, I just think it's interesting. I might actually write an article about this soon that uh, December 2021 actually marks 50 years of the war on cancer, which, you know, as you mentioned at, at the beginning of this talk, is it has not been a success by any means. We now have, you know, one in three women and one in two men with cancer. And that doesn't mean there haven't been some breakthroughs and some key treatments and, um, it doesn't mean that, you know, these scientists aren't doing good work, but it, it's clearly, you know, not been a success. And what's really interesting is that, you know, it launched with Richard Nixon in 1971. And it was right around that time when we started to get this influx of high fructose corn syrup in, into our food and, you know, all the added sugar. So in a way, you know, I was just thinking the other day, I didn't even write this in ravenous, but it, it was sabotaged right from the start. Um, you know, we never really had a chance to win it if if all this stuff about insulin is correct, as I think it is. Mm. So it's like they declared war on a country and then brought all the enemies into our land. That's <laughs> pretty much what happened in 1971. Yeah, write, write an article about that. I didn't realize yeah, it's I actually been... have to steal that line from you. Yes, use it. For, go, go for it, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize it's been 50 years. And, and, you know, it's a shame because I believe these doctors do want to do the right thing and help people. But it's, it's just the premise is wrong. When the premise is wrong, it, it doesn't really matter what the treatment is. You got to get the premise right. And if you can understand the premises a metabolic disease primarily, then the treatment will be that much more efficient. And you know, there's great doctors out there that I've interviewed, Dr. Jason Fung, Dr. Aaron Chameleon, a few others, Dr. Nisha Winters, 
If you're anything like me, you probably spend some money each month on your supplements. But what if you're still tired and you just don't feel 100% well? Well, there could be a deficiency. What if there was a way to know if you were actually absorbing your supplementation or not absorbing and maybe you're taking too much of something? Well, what I'm bringing you today is a chance to accurately test all of that. In this case, I'm talking about upgraded formulas, upgraded hair test kit and consultation. And once you uncover these hidden deficiencies, you could get rid of these symptoms you might be experiencing that might be affecting your thyroid, adrenals, or much more. Upgraded Formulas is a very cool company. I interviewed Barton Scott, who is the founder and chemical engineer who helps craft all their supplements, and they have this really cool upgraded mineral deficiency analysis. So say goodbye to blood and urine tests, which typically indicate short-term results. Hair is the best identifier, and you could get that hair from your head, armpit area, or even pubic area, and you'll receive a consultation with a member of Upgraded Formulas to help discuss your results. And it's very simple. Collect your hair sample, send it in, and get your results fast. We've worked out an exclusive deal, KetoCamp podcast listeners, to receive 10% off your order. Head to UpgradedFormulas.com, use the coupon code BEN10 at checkout to get your hair mineral kit and any other supplements that you could find on their website. That is UpgradedFormulas.com. Use the coupon code BEN10. I am curious about this because when I interviewed Dr. Erin Keneally, who's an oncologist in California, she was sharing with me, and I think your, your research lined up, but I want to kind of get the specifics if you remember it. She was sharing with me that a, a regular cell has around four receptor sites for, for glucose. And she shared that a cancer cell has on average about 64 receptor sites for glucose. Have you looked into the specifics of those receptor sites with cancer versus non-cancerous cells? I looked at it more in the, in the context of insulin receptors. And it, it is true that uh, cancer cells have many, you know, typically have many more receptors for insulin. And, um, you know, that's one piece of, of evidence for this insulin hypothesis. And there's actually a number of others, which I find fascinating. One is that um, if you, uh, you know, starting in the early 2000s, they started to sequence tumors, you know, and, and be able to figure out exactly how many mutations they have. And, and the most common mutation of all, uh, most common mutations of all lie in this pathway uh, known as the PI3K AKT pathway. But th this is the pathway which is actually activated by insulin and which causes cells to then, you know, take up glucose. And if this pathway is hyperactivated, it'll take up more and more glucose and turn on the Warburg effect, you know, start to ferment it. So, you know, it's a really interesting clue, I think, that that's where the most common mutations are. And so, you know, it's led to this new picture, which is really about the interplay, you know, possible interplay of mutations in hyperinsulinemia that, you know, if you get a mutation in this pathway, maybe it won't take off and become a malignant cancer. But if you have it, that's going to make the cell more sensitive to cancer. It might also have more insulin receptors. And in that context, if you have hyperinsulinemia, then you're giving that cell a big growth advantage. It's going to take up more glucose than other cells. And once a cell is taking up excess glucose, it really, you know, I'm, I'm borrowing this language from Craig Thompson, who's one of the most influential cancer scientists alive, the president and CEO of Memorial Sloan Kettering. And he said that, um, you know, when a cancer can eat like that, it's no longer thinking about dying. It's thinking about now I can do a lot more things. You know, it can take all that glucose, 
can ferment it and it can use parts of the glucose to actually, you know, create daughter cells as, as sort of re-engineer the building blocks for daughter cells. And what's fascinating to me is that you, you think about this in the context of evolution, you know, cancer cells start to behave like single-celled organisms, right? They sort of break down this collective agreement that we have among all the cells in our body to work together. Instead, they're just out for themselves. And if you think about a cell in the wild, you know, a, you know, a microorganisms growing, that's all they do. They take up glucose when, the, when there's glucose and they make as many copies of themselves as they can. That's their evolutionary strategy. There's no glucose, there's no nutrients around. They sit and wait and, and try to conserve themselves, you know, autophagy as we talked about <laughs> until food comes around. So, you know, you can see that our own cells, you know, have retained through billions of years of evolution, retain these basic mechanisms. And, you know, some scientists talk about it as almost like a reversion to an earlier form of metabolism. You know, that gets into some sort of, some kinds of technical debates. But the point is that, you know, this is something we know about in biology. And Craig Thompson makes this point by showing a piece of bread in his talks, and he shows mold growing in one spot of the bread. And he shows that, you know, after a while it gets near the crust and they no longer have enough nutrients to grow. They need the glucose and nitrogen. Then, you know, they metastasize just like a cancer cell it spreads out to another piece of the bread. And then you see them eating and growing, eating and growing. So, you know, it's really fascinating to me that, um, you know, this core biology really goes back to microorganisms. Yeah, it's fascinating. You mentioned the molecule called PI3K. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. That's a molecule. It's not necessarily a genetic pathway. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's an enzyme, actually. It's an enzyme. Okay. Is there a way to test for that? You mean to test if it's mutated? To test if it's mutated. Correct. Yeah. I should know the answer to that. Uh, I I mean, if if you have cancer, then you can you know get this the test that will show you which mutations you have. If if you don't have cancer, can you just go in and, and try to find out if you have a mutation in that pathway? Uh, I'm not sure you can, but it's an interesting question. So if you did have cancer and you went in and tested this, would it give you an idea of specifics to the type of treatment you would want to do depending on the, the, the way that the, meta the cancer is metastasizing? Is that what, what it could do to help you kind of figure out the solution? Yeah, if you, you know, this, I didn't really write much about this in my book. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't, if anybody's listening out there, I wouldn't, you know, take my my word on this without doing additional research. But, um, you know, it, it's certainly true that, you know, based on which particular mutation you have, the doctor, the oncologist will, will devise a different treatment. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of, you know, this is a lot of what Thomas Seyfried talks about, that in general, these kind of targeted therapies to specific mutations haven't been as successful as we would have liked. And, Cancer cells, you know, unfortunately turn out to be even more complicated than anybody imagined. There are mutations all over the place and uh, many of them seem to be irrelevant to cancer. But if there are some cases uh, where they can, you know, successfully target your therapy according to mutations. And if you have a cancer that, that appears to be, you know, have a PI3K mutation or, or something in that pathway, then, uh, you know, they can devise a metabolic strategy accordingly and you know may choose specific drugs you know to to help slow down the consumption of glucose or the uh you know the way the cancer is using that fuel and you know what's what's really exciting I, I don't talk about this in my book because the science is really early but um 
what's exciting is that um, there are you know a series of PI3K blockers in the works. And initially they didn't work very well and they're still in trials, but uh, the scientist who's been leading the way on this is, is Lewis Cantley. He's at uh, Wild Carnell. He actually discovered PI3K and its relationship to, to cancer. He's now doing trials where he's combining PI3K with a ketogenic diet because the problem was if you block PI3K, that's, that's how a cell actually responds to insulin. So if you block it, your insulin levels rise. So you want to prevent cancer, but you're raising insulin levels, which is what you don't want to do. So he's now combining it. You know, this is in, in mostly in rodent studies thus far, combining the PI3K inhibitors with the ketogenic diet. And, you know, the early results have looked quite, quite promising, but, um, you know, it's too soon to say. What's, the, what's his name again? Uh, Lewis Cantley, C-A-N-T-L-E-Y. Awesome. I'm going to look him up. That, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, what's also interesting, Sam, is that what does it take about 10 to 15 years? Like if cancer starts growing in the body day today, how long does it take for it to be diagnosed on average from a, a doctor? Is it about 10 to 15 years, would you say? Yeah, I think that's about all right. I mean, it's, it can vary from cancer to cancer, but it's usually, you know, many, many years. Yeah. And, and we said earlier that <laughs> if insulin begins to rise, it's typically 10 to 15 years before that's diagnosed. So it's interesting how both of them kind of go together before a, a diagnosis is made. Just something that came in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've thought about that as well. You know, a lot of people know about the correlation between diabetes and cancer, but you know, that it's because diabetes you know, takes place over you know many decades and so does cancer. But if we could see that correlation earlier would make a huge difference. It's estimated that about 1 billion people on planet Earth have diabetes and another 4 billion have prediabetes, meaning in about, what, 10 years, those 4 billion could turn diabetic if we don't make a shift here, which is a scary thought. My final question to you is this. You are well-versed in cancer research. You have a book all about it. What are three action steps that we can do today that could yield us some of the best preventative measures to preventing cancer in the future? Yeah, well, I mean, first and foremost, eliminate sugar. Um, yeah, that's that's my my number one takeaway. Beyond that, I, I would say we'll count that as number one, I guess. Number two, I would say that um, you know, if you are insulin resistant, as the vast majority of American adults are, uh, you should look into, you know, doing, you know, whatever you can do to, you know, reduce your insulin resistance, as we've talked about the ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting. So those are two things. And then there, you know, I'm not discounting that that there are many other things, you know, obviously, you know, if, if we're talking about cancer in general, you don't want to smoke, hugely important. Um, you know, some, some cancers are, are linked to, um, you know, radiation, uh, you know, that's controversial, but, you know, it's not, I don't want to make it sound like every everything is diet related, but I, I do think that, um, you know, that's kind of the most fundamental thing you can do. And maybe number one, not even just saying sugar, but saying liquid sugar, drinking sugar, because that seems to be even fat in an even faster way to insulin resistance, you know, and then if you are insulin resistance, of course, you know, thinking about sugar more broadly in terms of cutting refined carbs as well. And, um, you know, beyond that, I, I would say trying to think rationally. I mean, one thing that uh, I've tried to do 
is to look at, um, you know, the war on cancer and what's failed and what's, you know, succeeded, not much has succeeded, but, um, you know, focusing on, on prevention rather than treatments, which haven't worked as well, I think makes a lot of sense. And, you know, if we're going to be panicked about things, being panicked about the right things, because I actually think that there's a lot of anxiety about chemical carcinogens, which, you know, are not a good thing, but often aren't very strongly linked to cancer. I mean, one famous example would be diet sodas. You know, I, I don't know that diet sodas are good for you. I don't recommend that people take them, but they're actually not linked to cancer. I mean, there's the evidence there is not strong. And so I see a lot of people drinking regular sugar sodas, which I do think are linked to cancer, uh, and instead of diet sodas, because they think the chemical and the diet soda causes cancer. So just thinking rationally about what we actually know and don't know about cancer, you know, I think can make a real difference. Great share. Uh, your book can be found on Amazon. It's called Ravenous, the uh, Ravenous Otto Warburg, the Nazis in the search for cancer diet connection. We're going to put a link down below. Where else can the listeners go check you out, Sam? Yeah, I'm on Twitter uh, at Sam underscore Apple one. And I have a website, samapple.com. And yeah, that's about it. I tried to get the Instagram going, but I think I'm giving up. I'm not good at it. <laughs> we'll put your your social media and your website and the link for your book down below. Uh, Sam, thank you for your tremendous research. And it's really much appreciated by me, the audience in the world, especially because, as you mentioned, one of the scariest things is that, that C word, cancer. And we all want to be proactive. Like Einstein said, who had a relationship with Warburg, uh, intellectuals solve problems, geniuses prevent them. So let's all be geniuses here. So thank you so much for being a genius and empowering us all to be a genius. Uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sam Apple. Uh, we got a little bit deep, so you might want to listen to this episode again. We're going to provide for you links for his books, his website, his social media, everything could be found down below in the show notes, along with detailed notes and timestamps. If you want to go back and see in case you missed something or want to hear something again, you could find that using the timestamps down below. You could also find our episode sponsor links down below with the special coupon codes. If this episode was valuable to you, please consider leaving it a rating and review on Apple Podcast. And if you know somebody who is dealing with cancer or heck, you know somebody who wants to be preventative, which we, sh we should all be, then please copy and paste the link to this episode and send it to them in a text message and say, hey, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Ben Azadi and Sam Apple. So please do so. Let's spread the message. Thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. Super grateful for you. I'll see you on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.